You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. We are in our year-long series in the book of Acts, and we are dividing this incredible book into six acts. And wouldn't you know it, we're already at the end of Act 1, and we have called this first act within the book of Acts, um, the church begins. And um, time is flying by because today we end our first sub-series, The Church Begins, with a sermon today that is entitled, The Church Blessed. So our first sub-series ends today with a sermon entitled, The Church Blessed. Now, I'm very thankful for where we've been in Acts so far. I'm thankful God has led us to this point. Um, Being in the book of Acts, it becomes an incredible process of mind renewal. You know, like um, you're remembering, in essence, when you jump into the initial chapters, what does God bless? You know, I remember preaching through a short series in Acts in year one of our church. So 2004, it was like the first two months of our church began And it was just like six messages. I I remember that through different chapters in Acts. But we called that series back in year one. It was was in with the old, out with the new. Um, In with the old, out with the new. Meaning like the old never gets old when it comes to the things of the Lord. Um, Jeremiah 6, verse 16. uh, Stand by the crossroads and look and ask. So there's a crossroads. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. See, the things of God never, ever get old. There's always a new thing in our day. There's always a new temptation. There's always a new way to go. There's always a new gimmick. And that all the new will never really ever produce anything what's good. It's the things that have been always proven in the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. So, so I, I always like that. I got to think about it before you say it the wrong way because of that saying. But in with the old and out with the new. This is what we're seeking to do. There are certain wells that will never, ever run dry. There are certain wells that will always provide life-giving, spirit-filled water again upon his church. And in fact, so much of the Christian life comes down to finding out what God says, I bless this, and then pursuing that with your life. We make it way too complicated. So much of the Christian life is continue to faithfully devote yourself to that which God says, I promise to bless. This past week, our Pastors and directors were able to get away for, I don't know, maybe 30 hours together on a little retreat. And really the theme of that retreat became, what is true success defined by God? To always remind ourselves, who is the person God blesses? What is the church that God empowers? What is the life that God works in? See, as much as we're thankful for the abundant ministry around us, we can never, ever forget the foundational ministry beneath us. And that's what we get to do today again in Acts, this opportunity to be reminded of what constitutes the blessed church. Listen, guaranteed. God is not trying to hide this from us. God wants us to see it straight up front. It's amazing though, we get lazy and bored and then we seek to move on to some form of entertainment and we dismiss The very elements that God says, I will always work within a people in a church that seeks me in this form. So we get to see again today and we're reminded from a very familiar and beautiful passage. Again, what are the essentials of the blessed 
church. What are the priorities that we learn from within the early church? So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at these great verses, six verses, um, verses 42 to 47. I'm not expecting anything to be new, but that's why it's true. Verse 42, and they devoted, so 3,000 people were just saved, every single one of them. And they voted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. I love that. Even some awe today. I mean, I'm sitting there watching that glorious story of Julie, and there's awe filling my heart. There's awe filling my soul. Just the awe of God. Of who else can change lives in this way? This world is so hurting. This world is so desperate for hope. And one, just another story, just proclaiming the power of hope found in Jesus Christ alone. Just declaring it for anyone who's willing to listen with faith. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, who believed, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Amazing. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pretty remarkable, huh? Here's how we tackle this text today. What are the marks of the church blessed? What are the, what are the marks of the blessed church? Let's jump right in. Mark number one, uh, steadfast devotion. The first mark of the church that is blessed is there was undeniably a steadfast devotion. If you look at verse 42 again, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, breaking of bread, and notice definite article of the, the prayers. I place steadfast in this mark because devoted in verse 42, the word devoted literally means, it carries the meaning of, um, Richard Longnecker put it this way, many commentators board his phrase too, devoted means a steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Now, discipline yourself to hear that phrase again. The word devoted means a steadfast, single-minded fidelity or purity to a single course of action. I mean, it's hard to overstate the value and the power of a life lived or a church lived with that mindset. Single-minded fidelity. Um, Eugene Peterson, he wrote the book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's really good. That's really, I read that maybe 20 years ago. Think about a long obedience in the same direction summarizes the Christian life in its faithfulness. Think about that. A long obedience in faithfulness in the same direction in your life, in your marriage. Please, God. Have marriages that just believe in the long obedience, not based on feeling, but of honoring the covenant before God in the direction of faithfulness and purity. In the church, 
to not being swayed by every wind of doctrine when the next wind blows and you're off on the outskirts, but to stay centered and anchored in Christ. The long obedience of steadfast devotion to the things of the Lord. And you have to understand this. When the church or the life loses its passion and love for Christ, then it loses its bearings. And when you lose your bearings, listen carefully, you lose your blessing. And you're like, why would you say that? Revelation to the church in Ephesus is the, is the ultimate and supreme example. They lost their first love, and Jesus said, unless you repent and return to me, and you will, you will lose your lampstand, it will be given to someone else. I mean, how more clear can Christ be? To lose your passion and your love for Christ in some form, in some way, especially as the church, is to lose the blessing and favor of God in terms of his working and his power. This is why the four pillars of Hope Bible Church have always meant so much to me and been such a blessing from the very beginning. And I am deeply thankful for the past that has given that to us by the grace of God. The four pillars of this church become the foundation of our convictions, listen, that directs our devotion, right? So you have to have conviction based on God's word that will direct your devotion, then that guarantees God's blessing. i got to stop on that too. Do you have that personally for your life? Do you have a biblically founded um, foundation of conviction that you know what God has for you based on God's word that then directs your life and your devotion. What should I do today? What should I be loving? The foundation of convictions in God's word directs your devotion. When you are directed in devotion to God's word and God's will, then you are guaranteed God's blessing. You are not guaranteed an easy life. I did not say that. You are not guaranteed a freedom from trials. In fact, you are guaranteed suffering and trials, and God will use that even to create blessing in your life. Do we have a foundation of conviction that directs our devotion, that guarantees God's blessing? The early church did. By the way, the early church is not perfect. But right here, we learn a lot from them. I've always said, you know, when you come to Acts chapter 2, it's nothing new, it's just Acts 2. It's nothing new, it's just Acts 2. I mean, I'm really happy that rhymes. It's just easier to say. I like rhyming. Do you like rhyming? I like rhyming. It's fun. Sometimes I drive my kids crazy. I just rhyme as many words as I can possibly think of. And one level, they're like, how do you do that, Dad? And they're like, no idea, but just keep being impressed. Okay, kids, there you go. All right. It's nothing new. It's just Acts 2. It's so true. I've always said that. It's right here in front of us. Again, it's not supposed to be new. So let's take a look. Let's take a look here. Verse 42. What was their steadfast devotion towards? Notice, first and foremost, to the apostles' teaching. Why does that come first? It comes first because without doctrine, remember, doctrine in, in Scripture, it's just teaching. Sometimes we get so afraid of that word. It just means teaching. It's a systemized form of teaching. Without doctrine, there's no direction. There's no direction. Look up here for a second. This book is the compass for the church. You open up the book and it's pointing north to God. And it, it shows us how we go individually, as a family, as a church, as a community. If you close the book, you, you, you remove the compass and you're left to wander through the forest by your own means, you're dead. 
You'll never, you just go around in circles, never getting anywhere. You open the book. Every generation in Christ has had to open the book and figure out where God wants them to go. That's why they're devoted to the teaching. This is why in the Great Commission itself, in Matthew 28, as part of the fundamental instructions for the church forever, Jesus says, teaching them all to observe everything that I have commanded you. Teaching. This is why one of the greatest charges in the New Testament, Paul to Timothy, he said, preach the word, Timothy. Preach one of the greatest charges in the New Testament. This is why we will not see maturity if we continue to feed on milk. It's why the church is so weak in so many situations. Because the church is feeding on pablum and milk. And if all you do is feed on milk, you can't grow. You won't mature. You can't build muscle. Your bones won't grow. You have to be fed with the proper nutrients. Again, you cannot continue to be feeding on the same things year after year after year. You have to get to the meat at some point. No offense, vegetarians. You have to get to the source of strength. It's a biblical term. It's not mine, so don't get mad at me. No emails this week, please. Thank you, okay? okay? You have to, Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. And what it says, it says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He is a child, it says. You know one thing about, I mean, it's so endearing about children, it's so cute sometimes, but the reality is children will believe anything. It's amazing the things I can get away with with my kids if I try to trick them. They'll believe anything. They're slowly getting smarter. But as a child, because they trust, they just don't know enough yet. And those who remain immature in the Christian faith, they also will seemingly believe anything because they don't know any better. That's why one of Satan's greatest ploys in the church today is to keep us as immature as possible, that we cannot discern between what is, between what is right and wrong. We're unskilled in the word of righteousness. I'm telling you, a steadfast devotion to the teaching of God's word has it ever been more needed in this, in this nation. In the history of Canada, has a steadfast devotion to the teaching of God's word ever been more needed to be able to discern between right and wrong, between what is true and what is false, what is a lie of Satan, what is the promise and the love and the light of God? We must, we must, we must, as a church, before anything else, have a steadfast devotion to the teaching of God's word because that's what leads to everything else. Notice next what they were devoted to. They were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship is the familiar Greek word koinonia. The root of koinonia is common. What they shared in common. Fellowship is what we have in common in Christ. Now think about that. Fellowship ultimately at its most base root is what do we share together in Christ? What do we have in common with one another? How about this? We share life in Christ. We share the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We share in the hope of glory. We, we share in being adopted as sons and daughters of God. I mean, and you really marvel at the depth of the relationship that's found in Jesus Christ. You know, they say that blood is thick. Speaking of blood relatives, listen, the blood of Christ is thicker. When you, people beside you right now, every person that's saved in this room right now, I mean, you are literally, supernaturally brothers and sisters in Christ. More so than your blood family members. It's more powerful than that. It goes on for eternity. That's why this week I saw some of our people were out, wife and I were out doing some grocery shopping, ran to a family from a church, seen them in a little bit, and the, and the light 
in their eyes and the smile on their faces and the embrace in the store and the joy to see them. It's pretty awesome. Because that's what we share in Christ. We share Christ himself. I love that story. I think Billy Graham told it. And I think I heard it secondhand from someone else. Two men were in, walking down cold streets of Eastern Europe on a winter day. And the one man is walking down the street all bundled up. It's blistering cold, but he's humming a hymn, a Christian hymn. Another man's walking by him, and he hears the tune of that hymn, and they pass each other by, and it turns out they do not speak the same language. But the second man who hears the first man humming the hymn, he begins to hum the hymn as well. They recognize in that moment, they both know the hymn, the Christ-centered hymn. They both understand that moment, they're both Christ followers. They cannot speak the same language, yet they speak the heavenly language in terms of understanding what they share in Jesus Christ. They've never met each other before. They stop in the street, they turn, they embrace one another in the love and the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They give each other blessing the language, and they go on for their days, and each of them never forgot that moment the rest of their life. That's the power of fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ is a bond that is expressed that you cannot begin to explain otherwise. This is what we have in the fellowship of Christ. So there's the awesome foundation of fellowship in Christ. We share life in him, but there's the practical as well. You share salvation, and then what happens is we are called to share yourself for Christ. You're, you're called to give to others, yourself. We will see in a few moments, we'll unpack this more because more of the marks to come are on this, but it's, imp- it's impossible to do the Christian life on your own. It's just theologically impossible. You must have fellowship, devoted to fellowship. Notice next in verse 42, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread is most accurately here the celebration of the Lord's Supper, almost certainly celebrated within a common meal together. But the essence of what's happening here in the breaking of bread in this context is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now remember, the early church is celebrating the Lord's Supper just weeks after Christ's death. How important it was to them to do this, how much more us. The value, the depth, the meaning of continual remembrance of the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, what he did for us. And then we see this, the prayers. Right from the beginning, notice, right from the beginning, the prayerful dependence marked upon the early church. I can't wait in the weeks to come. At some point when we have time, we're going to unpack the role of prayer in the early church, in the book of Acts, it's just profound. Almost every chapter in this book has some kind of prayer being offered up by the church to God in dependence on him. It's an amazing, amazing study. At the right time, we will unpack it in detail. So think about it here. Right from the start, there's a devotion to dependence. Do we have a devotion to dependence? A devotion to dependence. You know, um, one of the things I've been led to do in the last couple of weeks, and I pray will continue on for a very long time, but I'm personally, and I ask you to join me, I am praying that God would raise up intercessors in our church, specifically over the four services each Sunday. I want you to hear that, because I'm praying. Prayer at the end of the day, you can't, as Daniel Henderson says, I think, at least Pastor George says it for sure, you can't ought people to pray. Like, hey, you need to pray, you need to show up, you need to pray, you need to pray, yeah, 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 I ought to do that. At the end of the day, 
if you're just ought, it's not going to happen. There has to be the birthing and the desire and the calling and the conviction. And so I'm praying that God would raise up intercessors in our church that will be called to pray over the four serve. Because you know why? One thing I've known now, this is the sixth week in week we've done this. Nothing's ever going to happen apart from the Holy Spirit. Like, I've been encouraged. I'm not, I'm, I'm not discouraged. I'm encouraged. But I'm just saying, like, you just realize it will, it, it will not happen. You won't see more Julie stories apart from the prayers of God's people and the Holy Spirit doing all he can do. And, and, and so, Holy Spirit, would you, would you be quickening souls and consciences that would be called to the incredibly hard but incredibly awesome work of prayer in our church, specifically over interceding the four services on a weekly basis. What does it look like exactly? I'm not sure. But I just know that without it, nothing's going to happen. That's why this week we have our church-wide prayer meeting. Our church-wide prayer meeting where we get to gather and we get to join together in the calling of being steadfastly devoted to prayer. And so I'm already excited about this Wednesday, and what God will do. I want to put a quote on the screen up for you by Spurgeon. He says this, he says, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. This is so important. If God be near a church, it must pray. That's right. And if he be not there, how many of us have been in situations where this is true? And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness and prayer. And if he be not near a family, and if he be not near a marriage, and if he be not near a life, and if he be not near a friendship, and if he be not near an elders team, and if he be not near a staff, and if he be not near a church as a whole, it'll likely begin with a slothfulness in prayer. Notice the steadfast devotion of the early church to teaching and fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Let me ask you a question. What's your devotion? What are you most devoted to right now? Like right now. Take a survey of your life right now. What is your devotion towards? Mark number one, steadfast devotion to the things of Christ. Mark number two, awe-filled fear. Awe-filled fear. Look at verse 43 now. And awe came upon every soul. Oh, the blessed church is the one that is not filled with the fear of man. The blessed church is the one that is filled with the fear of God. That phrase, and awe came upon every soul. That's so beautiful. That's so healthy. What does awe here mean? It means reverence and honor and the wholesome fear of God. You know what? When you have awe upon a church, that is a sign of great grace upon that church. It's also a sign that that church is in shape. Like taking the physical metaphor, when someone is fit and healthy and strong and muscles are firm and, and, and fat is being trimmed and there's a, 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 a lean body muscle, I mean the person, the heart is beating with efficiency, the person's in shape. And their productivity is just a sign. Well, something, something has contributed to that reality. You can't just sit around for that to happen. There's been initiative. There's, there's been a, a promotion. of a, When a church has a sense of awe, 
and the awe of God and the fear of the Lord is upon the people, that is an awesome sign that God is at work and there's health in the midst. That does not happen just like that. It's amazing to me too, like, you get certain gatherings, I mean, where there's such a, um, a, a fervency of people who are gathered and the way the Spirit of God moves. Sometimes when you're just preaching, you're just like, man, there must be some, some significant holiness in the room of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ because you just sense that there's a freedom and a power and an awe that is represented. When the church is filled with awe, it's a church that won't be complaining, but will be grateful. It's a church that is not apathetic, but is filled with adoration. It's a church that's not self-centered, but surrendered. It's a church not just of programs, but with God's presence. It's a church not of gimmicks, but of glory. It's a church not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the power of God. It's a church not of a certain personality, but a church centered on one person, Jesus Christ. It's a church filled with awe, a church not with haughtiness, but with holiness. This doesn't happen every week, but for me as I prepared this sermon this week, I just had this unexplainable several moments as I'm just writing this message of just stopping and overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the awe of God. I don't even know why exactly it's happening. I just, I had tear after tear hitting my study desk. And just sensing the Lord, his grace and his kindness and his love. Man, it's a wondrous thing. It's a wondrous thing to be sitting there and staring at his word and staring out the window and just filled with the awe of the Lord and the sense of his grace and kindness and his power and his sovereignty and his glory. It's a feeling there you're by yourself and only the Lord sees, but you're there and you're just like, there's no form of entertainment that can touch this. There's no leisure, vacation, or pleasure, or amount of money that can come close to the satisfaction and the sufficiency of being filled with the awe of the Lord and knowing your greatest purpose is to become less that Christ might become more. It's an awesome thing because he's awesome. And the more the church is filled with awe, the more miracles we will see in our midst, the more blessing we will know. But awe doesn't happen by accident. It happens with intention. As the people of God are filled with the fear of God. And you just think of how important God's fear is to his people. We're going to be here in a couple of weeks. When, if you turn, you don't turn right now, I'm saying when you go to Acts chapter 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And in that story, it's not that they weren't giving everything. It's they lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And how seriously God takes that moment to the point they are both struck down dead within hours of each other. And of course, it says, and great fear fell upon the church. What a statement God was making right from the beginning. He's like, don't trifle with me. Don't you let sin operate in my church. I'm going to show you how seriously I take this. Both are struck down dead. Can you imagine the seriousness and sober-mindedness that would have set in upon that group of people at that time to saying, wow, wow. Look at how much our God takes seriously the reality of sin. And i got to ask you to say, what sin exists in this room right now?
what sin are people playing with in this room right now? I mean, the Bible says, I mean, you hold fire close to your chest, you're going to get burned, man. You're going to get burned. And the fear of God says, I don't want that to happen. The fear of God says that I fear the Lord more than I love the pleasure or the temporary pleasure of my sin. The church is refined and then the church reveres. That's what happens. The church is refined and the church reveres. So awe then is one of the strongest signs of health in a church. Let me just say this as we transition. Worldliness is anti-awe. If you want awe, you cannot just be of the world. Worldliness and all its entertainment, it is anti-awe. It numbs us into oblivion. And I'm challenged by that too. Mark number three of the blessed church, spirit-filled generosity. Look at verse 44 now. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, Let's be really clear here. These verses are not advocating a form of Christian communism. And they're not advocating a form of Christian socialism either. Okay? The greatest reason for this right here, okay? And why would you say that? The greatest reason this is not Christian communism is this wasn't forced. There was no government-induced behavior. This was absolutely voluntary. This was a spirit-filled generosity, power, working upon God's people in the joy of of giving of themselves. This is important too because these verses are instances we got to be careful between description and prescription. We mentioned that way back in week one. What's being described and what's being prescribed. Certain cults have taken these verses and misled people spiritually by legalism and forcing this upon people and forcing upon the selling of all possessions, whatever it is, and coming into some kind of like, you know, unbiblical, cult-centered society based around a person. You know what's important, too, just to make sure? Is if you think about the context of what's happening, 3,000 souls were just saved. They were all from out of town. There was one church at this point. It was in Jerusalem. They're sticking around. You have 3,000 people that need food and need shelter and need homes. And so that's what's happening in the context. The people of God are led in a supernatural, awesome way to be so generous to take care of the multi-thousands that were there. And you have people all over the place. It's incredible to see what God is doing in that regard. Again, the Holy Spirit moving. And by the way, too, this description of Acts 2, it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament and any other church. It's just Jerusalem. I'm not taking anything away from what happened here. Just making sure, though, that we understand the context. And people say, well, you got to sell your homes. Well, the reality is, is that if you look at verse 46, in verse 46 it says, well, they had to sell their homes, then they still had homes, breaking and bread in their homes. In Acts 12, we hear about the house of Mary, praying for Peter's release, and Lydia's house in Acts 16, and Philip's house in Acts 21. Got to be careful when people take things and go too far with them. However, let us not miss out at all. And let us highlight with tremendous significance the voluntary, extraordinary, supernatural generosity between the believers here. You have a beautiful, held loosely, sacrificial, spirit-empowered generosity. It is awesome. It is beautiful. 
It is right to model after the example of being as generous as we can and to want to be with great joy. One of the telltale signs, listen carefully, one of the telltale signs of a spirit-filled church, it's a generous church. 100% that is true. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, generosity will be the fruit. Always. Always. Where the Spirit of God is at work, there's an others-centeredness. There's a, there's a joy in giving. Always. Just a couple of questions for you on the screen here that I want you to see. Do I see generosity within my life based on, again, Acts chapter 2, is my life others-centered or self-centered? Say, well, how do I determine that? Think about how you spend your time. Think about how you spend finances. Think about how you spend or seek your desires. Just, just take an inventory of life. We have to be reminded of this all the time. Do I hold possessions lightly or, or tightly? The early church was just like, whatever you need, whatever you need, whatever you need is awesome. So beautiful. This is an important one. Do I grumble at giving or do I find joy in giving? God loves a cheerful giver. Is it when I'm always grumble or don't give at all? It's a really, it's a really, it's a strong sign that it's not good with the Lord. But to find joy in giving, to say you get it, you're just about the kingdom. You desire to be about that, which lasts for eternity. This is an important one too. Really, really important one. Is there a cost in my life due to my generosity? Meaning sacrificial giving and truly generous giving says, in my life, I could do ABC, but because I believe, or because I believe in giving the joy of it, I'm going to sacrifice that. There's a, there's a cost to my giving as opposed to I'm just giving out of my abundance. I have so much, I just give, and it doesn't, it doesn't cost me anything. So everything I want to do, everything I've ever wanted, I get. But there's no cost to my giving. That's not really biblical giving. That's, as the Bible says, giving out of your abundance. Every single one of us, New Testament generosity and giving, there should be a cost. You should be able to look at our lives and say, what am I not able to do because of my giving? But I do it gladly and with joy because I believe God is working through my life and I want to give to his kingdom. Generosity with others. Can you, ima can you imagine, I just love one of these moments where, can you imagine if this was lived out in our church, every single person lived out this kind of generosity in our church? Can you imagine tripping over ourselves to be joyful in our giving to one another in so many different ways? And let me say this too. So many of you are so beautiful in this regard. There's so many, since the church began, really a theme of generosity has run through this whole church in just an amazing, amazing way. Spirit God way. So many of you are so powerfully used in this regard. And we pray more and more and more and more because of the joy and the blessing that comes from that. So the blessed church We'll see steadfast devotion, awe-filled fear, spirit-filled generosity. And in Mark number four, the blessed church will see beautiful unity. Look at verse 46 now. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So here we have a beautiful picture of the church united in the spirit of God. Notice a few things about this unity. I want to put them on the screen for you. A few things about this unity. First of all, notice a daily unity. Notice there's a daily unity here. Notice day by day. Day by day is mentioned twice in these two verses. These two verses. So this is not a once a week Christianity. Okay, church, if you think that you can mature in Christ and be part of true fellowship and just attend right now on Sunday morning, you're wrong. 
if this is the only input of Christ we have in our lives once a week, we're wrong. That type of Christianity will only take you so far. Notice they met in the temple and in their homes. Notice that. The power of group time. The fellowship of being with others again in Christ. Being together in this way. Held accountable. Loving each other. Caring for one another. Being known. Loving others. It was a daily unity. Notice next. There was a simple unity. I love this too. Notice they were together it says. They were together. That's kind of important to promote unity. You have to be together. The community, the unity within community, and community promoting unity. Notice they were together in the homes in the temple, sharing life together. The Holy Spirit taught them immediately. The Holy Spirit taught them this truth right here. I want you to see this quote right here. We viewed this before. It is very important. Do we have that? Let's put that. No, no. Let's put the quote up. You got that quote? Put that other quote up about you know that quote? You got that quote. Don't you got that quote? Come on, you got there it is. There's that quote. All right, there you go. Ready? Here it is. This is so important too. Maybe the Lord will use that moment of humor to emphasize this even more now, okay? You cannot fulfill God's will for your life without being connected to his church. That is, that is absolutely case-closed biblical theology right here, okay? If you want to be in God's will, it's impossible theologically, biblically speaking, to be in God's will, to fulfill God's will, and not be connected to his church, um, read a powerful illustration story this week. A young man came up to an older man in Christ. The young man was complaining. He didn't want to go to church. He didn't see the purpose. He could follow Christ on his own. The old man was tending a fire. The old man said nothing. He took one of the coals from the fire. It was red hot and burning in the fire. He took it and he placed it without the fire by itself. And all of a sudden the coal started to lose its flame and lose its glow and lose its heat. The young man observed as the coal there started to dwindle down and lose its fire and passion, the old man took with the tongs, took the coal and then put it back in the fire, and the coal was restored with fire and burning as it came together with the rest. He did not say a word to the young man. The young man got everything he needed to know from that illustration. How many people have tried to be the coal on their own apart from the church? And they say, well, the church is messed up. Yes, it is. To the glory of God. Okay? The church is, is imperfect. Yes, we're this side of heaven. The church has failed me. Me too. You know who my biggest problem is in the church? Me. I'm the biggest problem, okay? Because my sin and my heart, and that's the whole point. We need Christ. The people who expect, since when are you Jesus? You know, I'm like, come on. Where's the grace that's needed to give to one another, to understand? Of course, we're all in this to pray for one another, to help each other. We come with sin. We, 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 we come against sin. We don't, we don't tolerate that, but at the same time, we have grace and love. And the whole point is, Jesus designed his church. Jesus married the church and died for the church. And Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, the church is pretty important to Jesus. It needs to be pretty important to us as well. A daily unity, a simple unity. A, now you can put that up. A joyful unity. Verse 46 says, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Okay, you know what I love about this? Is that that word generous can also be, tra- in fact, in most of the translations, it's translated sincerity or simplicity. Now, I love this because more and more in my life, and, and I'm not there, but I want to grow more. I, I believe so much in simplicity. I believe in the biblical power of sincerity and simplicity. Like, like, like the more to just, for life not to be so complicated, to not be, you know, that, you know that phrase, the more you own, the more it owns you? 
Man, that's true, isn't it? You see so many people, they are slaves to their possessions. All they do is take care of what they own, and something always breaks. You ever walk into a super wealthy home, whatever, even those houses break down too. Everything's always decaying and breaking down. The more we own, the more it owns us. And it's exhausting. And at the end of the day, you feel like, I'm just wasting so much time. The power of simplicity to be freed up for the things of God. It's not wrong to have stuff. It's not wrong to own stuff. But if it owns you, that's a problem. If you're owned by what you own, make a change. Make a change. That's a tremendous sign. You're unable to be generous. And they receive food with glad, with joyful and generous, simple, sincerity, hearts following the Lord. Beautiful. See that in the early church? They were, just, they were held back by nothing because they were so led by God's Spirit to hold everything so loosely. And it gave them so much joy. God, help us to learn. Our society is anti that verse. 100% anti that verse. And then notice this lastly, a favored unity. A favored unity. Notice in praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were favored by God in worship. They were favored of God with others. They were favored by God in growth. Truly this was the church blessed. It's not a perfect church, but it was a blessed church. I love that. And you see there in verse 47, it says, praising God. That is, that is singing. That is singing to God. Worshiping God. And having favor with all the people. So I thought in light of this message today, in light of the unity and the theme, in light of the joy, in light of that last verse in singing, and in light of the generosity of spirit, we're going to end today. We're going to sing, but we're going to, we're going to sing a song of unity. We're going to sing a song of joy. We're going to sing a song that's just a little bit rowdy. But I'm praying that now that it's almost the end of this service, you're going to want to clap and sing and rejoice that we are a people together in the Lord Jesus Christ that are unified. And listen, loved ones, if you're going to celebrate anything today, celebrate this. Celebrate that you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You will never die. Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and you will be them forever. And sin, death, and hell will be defeated forever in Satan himself. And you have nothing to fear but everything to look forward. Celebrate that today. Celebrate the unity found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray we'd be so excited to you. So, Father in heaven, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit now and allow us to celebrate and sing for joy all that you've entrusted to us. May your church be one marked, marked by these things in Acts 2. So blessed. So filled with joy, so filled with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, people.